Nebraska, you ready? I am. Nice. What about Kentucky? Born ready. All right. We three kings. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage <laughs> Cromcast. Uh, I'm Luke. I'm Josh. I am Magi Jonathan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dang. We're, for- uh, we're going to be... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I forgot to include my title. Oh. <laughs> but, but you're Balthazar. <laughs> we are going to be uh, sharing the table with a certain King Cole this evening. That's what we're getting into. Uh, I think, Josh, you originally titled this reading the inspiration inspirado this is the inspirado episode we're so we're on the we're on the third episode of of season nine and so uh you just get the three jokers tonight uh we (laughs) we've been joined by some guests previously in the season but but at this point in time it's just going to be the 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 big the big three that you get here and we're going to be reading and discussing the striking of the gong which is a robert e howard joint and it was amended a little bit by by Lynn Carter, so maybe we'll get into some Carterian discussions too. I would like. We that. tried to get Kevin Sorbo, but he was busy. <laughs> yeah, he never returns our calls. Never, go Kevin. On. We know you're listening. Go on a legendary journey with us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Don't make us call Zena. Zena, I feel like is way out of our league. Oh, I would, I think, we would call think, her to like yell at him. Okay. I think I can. I think we can get Sorbo. Who's a uh, Zena's helper? What was her name? I can't remember. She's blonde. I can't remember. Willow. Willow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's it. I'm going um, to look this up. This is the best of TV. When you get this, Zena. No, not Zena, New York. Not places. We want other uses. Is it? It starts <laughs> oh, with a G. Is it Gabrielle? Gabrielle. There we yeah. go. Good call, dude. Nailed it. <laughs> That's what we're getting into. So we'll talk a little bit about Carter, maybe. We'll definitely talk about Robert E. Howard. We'll definitely talk about Cole. We'll definitely get all get all emo and existential with this one because that's that's how Cole do. Right. And uh, that's what you're going to get tonight. This is a fairly short story, but I think there's an opportunity here to compare and contrast the the versions of the story. I think we can go two hours on this four page story. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the size of the story. It's how we can talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Wax on and on and on. So uh, we'll see. Uh, Josh, what are you drinking? Uh, I currently am living the high life, cur- courtesy <laughs> Mr. Luke. Yeah, I, br- I brought some of the high lifes to the table, and then you brought some uh, some Newcastle Nut Browns. Newcastle Nut Brown. Yeah. What do you have, dude? I forgot you love the Nut Brown, don't you? Me? Yeah. Yeah, I do like a brown ale. I love them. I remember you drinking that frequently. Yes. Not like... Too frequently. frequently. No, yeah, all, all the time. That's the only way I can deal with life. <laughs> is the question, what am I, what am I drinking? <laughs> yes, is that I can, it is. Like, yes. I'm going with some Knob Creek 100 nice. proof. Nice. I'm going to polish that off. And then a LaCroix chaser. LaCroix. I can dig that. Croix. Nice. LaCroix. Did you guys know that Lynn Carter's full, his Christian name, if you will, is Linwood Vrooman Carter? I knew it was Linwood. Linwood Vrooman, V R O O M A N Carter, Vrooman, Vrooman. So there's that. Well, I think that I know what I'll name my second child, no matter their sex. <laughs> Vrooman, Vrooman, Vrumina, and Vrumina. Yeah, that's what we're that's, <laughs> that's what we're drinking. We're we're getting sidetracked. Let's go ahead and do the one things.
had a gong that, in it. Yeah, that was amazing. That was grandiose, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes. Rob P. When did you, we get that one? Uh, Rob sent us a handful of of uh, of one thing bumpers that I put in the Dropbox folder and then forgot to put onto the iPad. Um, cool guy. So yes, yeah, so, such a cool guy. So talented, and uh, uh, we appreciate those bumpers. So uh, I found that one. That is that is called One Thing Cull, and I thought it was appropriate. And Luke is right; it has a gong. <laughs> Gonna bang it like Strike t- it. like T Rex. Uh, <laughs> I get my my glam rock here. Uh, okay, so let's do let's do the one things. I'm gonna throw the throw the wiffle ball over to. Uh, John. Me? I get to go first? Yeah, you do. Well, I was trying to decide which one I was going to pick. I think I'm going to go with maybe something I've picked before. Is that allowed, judges? It's it's whatever you're into. It's a week-to-week, the... moment-to-moment thing, man. Okay. Whenever so the right Inspirado now, hits. <laughs> he's so just gonna right go now, with... I'm into a little video game called Stardew Valley. <gasps> and I think I talked about it on the show before. I yeah. can't remember, but I rediscovered it, and I got it on my Switch. And I remember just how much I loved that game because it reminds me so much of all the many hours I wild away playing harvest moon 64. And it's kind of a modern interpretation of that game. Uh, by that, I mean that it's not like updated graphics or anything. It's just a slightly different story and there's some magic stuff, but nothing too heavy, but you're a farmer and you're trying to restart your grandpa's farm for him after he passes away and like bring glory back to the to the farmstead and you farm a lot and you forage a lot and you mine and you meet the vill- other villagers and you try to find a spouse and uh make friends right now my best friend is the guy that lives in a tent up in the mountains his name's linus <laughs> and he's, he's pretty cool we talk about foraging a lot does he have a, uh, a cult no he's just he lives alone in this tent and he's got sort of like a vest made out of leaves, and that's all he wears. It sounds like a cult and, leader, dude. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm into this. I he's think gonna, Linus is a cool guy. He's going to invite you to to join him for a, for a rainbow tradition. One <laughs> one uh, one full moon. Yeah. Try some Kool Aid. <laughs> <laughs> so so this is a video game, or or this is a person that you know. You can be you can be honest. He's in the video game. This okay. is your video I game think. friend. Right. I'm using air quotes. Your video game friend. He is my video game. Friend. Linus comes over and we play Stardew Valley. <laughs> Bless try it. If you've never tried it before, or if you're a Harvest Moon fan, I think you might enjoy it. I just built a coop. I'm about to buy some chickens. Oh, dude. So what? Yeah. Rhode what? Island Reds. <laughs> what got you started uh, playing Stardew Valley again? I. Okay. Like, how authentic do you want me to be about this? So uh, you choose your level of authenticity. <laughs> I was reading about self-care recently and I realized that I had wanted to play that game for a long time and I don't have it on my, I had it on steam, but I don't have it downloaded on my computer right now. And there was something about the idea of playing it on my switch that was very connected to the idea of the 64. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to buy this game and I'm going to play it. And that was like uh, last Friday or so. And I almost chickened out. My wife was like, no, do it. Buy the game. You just were talking about it for like 12 minutes. <laughs> just do it, buy it, and play it. And so I've been playing it a lot since then. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. There was a recent episode of the Retronauts podcast that was a retrospective review of Stardew Valley uh, within the last couple of weeks. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty interesting that uh, that you're you're thinking Stardew Valley and they just did that podcast drop on Stardew Valley. It's synchronicity. Have you played man. it? Uh, I have not played it, but it's the reason that I gasped when you said Stardew Valley is I listened to the Retronauts episode <laughs> about Stardew Valley and I started playing Harvest Moon Friends of Mineral Town for Game Boy oh. Advance. So we're both playing farm simulators. That wasn't going to be nice. my one thing, but now it is. <laughs> Luke, so. have you ever played Harvest Moon? I haven't, but I'm feeling a little bit fun. of the synchronicity here. And maybe, so I guess I'll do a repeat one thing because just a couple weeks ago or a couple recordings ago, my one thing was my garden. And I'll go ahead and make my, my farming activities my, my one thing also. Because <laughs> nice. uh, I've been like Zinnia crazy. You might, you might call it something that a pansy might do, but I'll say, hey, a pansy is a pretty flower. I'm not growing any pansies. I'm not... I'm not at that level yet, but I have been planting a lot of a lot of flowers lately. I put out a whole bunch of zinnia seeds yesterday and today because uh, I think they're I think they're foolproof. I think they they're uh, just pretty flowers they're that grow everywhere. Up. And I've been told by a good friend of mine that the gold finches love them and they're good for the pollinators. And I'm excited about getting some flowers just all up in my nice. yard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we were texting just uh, just yesterday about uh, backyard garden therapy, dude. And yeah, it's yeah, it's real. And it's after Derby Day, so you can plant whatever you want. I well, like the the full 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 on like the the gate is opened and I'm I'm unloading, man. Like I I went I went <laughs> I went like off the chain this weekend, which was Derby weekend. So yeah. The, the pollinators best be giving me some high fives here in a couple weeks. <laughs> no doubt. It was this was this was very uh, very farming, very very vernal, agrarian. Oh wait, I want to hear more about Star or uh, Mineral Valley. Uh, uh, yeah, it's called Harvest Moon Friends of Mineral Town. And, Mineral Town. And from so the only other Harvest Moon game I ever played was the one for Super Nintendo, and it starts in a very similar way. Like you show up at the farm. And Mm -hmm. it's a family friend. It's somebody that you, as a kid, uh, spent summers just sort of working on their farm. And they've died and left you the farm. And Mm -hmm. your challenge is to, I think, within a certain amount of game time, bring the farm back to to prominence. Oh, yeah. yeah. So so you have to uh, make a certain amount of money and and, uh, have a certain array of crops and livestock and stuff in your in your farm before the time uh has elapsed so uh it's it's fun i've only played an hour or so so i've been clearing the field and uh running up on the mountain just to grab some some various herbs to throw into the the crate to sell uh fiddlehead ferns yeah uh so i gotta i gotta make enough money to buy the seeds that i want and uh (laughs) yeah then uh then I'll plant my garden. Isn't it crazy on those games, those farming simulators, uh, whenever there's a rainy day and you don't have to water the crops and you're like, oh, man, I can go explore the mountain now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, there's suddenly a lot more time in the day. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. The, those are some fun games. Uh, it's it's kind of relaxing, I think. Y- your, your statement about yeah. self-care is, I think, uh, spot on because there's just something about these games where I mean, there's a timer – but it seems like low pressure, low stakes, like you're trying to make money, right. but um, there's also an exploration aspect to it that uh, is yeah. kind of fun. You're reclaiming your family's farm. You're making friends, finding a spouse. Fishing. Fishing, yeah. 
Always fun. They they said on the Retronauts podcast that sometimes a witch will fly over your chicken coop and you'll yeah. end up with an evil <laughs> an evil hen or maybe some some weird eggs. Yeah, you get what's called a void egg. <laughs> after void the eggs. witch flies over. You get a void egg and then you get a void chicken. And you can't give the void eggs to people, otherwise they think that you want them to die. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like a bad thing. Okay. But then there's a traveling witch in her cart with a pit that's pulled by a pig, and you can buy special items from her. Is that there's a you... pagan god named Yabor? I think Luke would be into that. Sounds sounds good. Yeah. Sounds uh, sounds like it's up my alley. Can you uh, uh, trap people and burn them in wicker men that you've built? I haven't seen the wicker part yet. Okay. I have a basement full of villagers, but I haven't built a wicker man. <laughs> you haven't built a wicker. You got to have enough wood to do that. That's the Sims. That's yeah. not Stardew Valley. <laughs> so. How Jeffersonian of us. Very agrarian. <laughs> That's right. Those are some good ones. Th- one things I like that there's a there's a common thread there, and I, I really do feel like if we were to call up like Sting or the police, they would say that there's some level of the synchronicity going on. He's, <laughs> I know I know Sting's a pretty young Ian dude. I think we're pretty young Ian ourselves too. I think that's true. Yeah. One thing. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all you have to do. Press the button. One thing. Escaped. <laughs> then we're on to the next thing. All right, guys. So we have uh, a very short story. Somewhere in the neighborhood of four to six pages, depending on if you're reading it in a larger, a larger paperback or a smaller paperback. Uh, maybe that's a good way to sort of talk about this story and how we approach this story. So, again, we're talking about – it's called The Striking of the Gong, right? That's right. Which is a call story that was unpublished uh, within within Howard's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's in the Cull Del Rey, right? That's right. Which is the authoritative text that we read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other version of it, uh, which is amended by uh, Lynn Carter – is in the the King Cole like Lancer edition, mm-hmm. and so I have a copy of that. So uh, that's how we were able to read it yeah. as a group. So we read it that way. Yep. And my my more in depth reading was of the Del Rey, mm-hmm. the the Howard uh, text, and uh, you scanned the the uh, Carter amended I version did, yeah. last night, and I was able to skim it, but not do any kind of real in depth side by side comparison. Yeah. Um. But uh, before we get into the the meat and potatoes of the story, this this one is as as Luke said unpublished in Howard's lifetime, and uh, in the back of the Call Exile of Atlantis Del Rey, Patrice Lunet has an essay called Atlantean Genesis, and in it, uh, on page two ninety nine of the the book, he talks about uh, nineteen twenty eight drawing to a close. And Howard returns to Cull. So at the end of 1928 is, uh, uh, according to Patrice, uh, when the striking of the gong was uh, drawn up. This is when the story was drafted. And it was the first Cull story that did not go uh, to submission uh, to Weird Tales. This one went instead to Argosy. And it was not accepted. So Howard just sort of uh, put it on the back burner and then worked on other stuff. But the uh, the cool thing here to me is this letter that uh, Patrice adds to um, the the essay, a letter from Howard to uh, Tevis Clyde Smith, and in it 
uh, Howard is kind of laying out these philosophical um, uh, frameworks for uh, not just the striking of the gong, but the mirrors of Tuzan Thune as well. Mm -hmm. And I just want to read a couple of lines from it. He says, life is power. Life is electricity. You and I are atoms of power, cogs in the wheels of the universal system. Life is not predestined. That is, the trivial affairs of our lives are not. But we have certain paths to follow, and we cannot escape them. We are sparks of stardust, atoms of unknown power, powerless in ourselves, but making up the whole of some greater power that uses us as ruthlessly as fire uses fuel. We are parts of an eternity, futile in ourselves. We are merely phases of electricity, electrons endlessly vibrating between the magnetic poles of birth and death. And I think in that, we can see that Robert E. Howard was in a pretty weird um, place, at least uh, in terms of his introspective sort of philosophies uh, that manifest in his stories. I'm thinking about how to how to how to respond here. I mean, <sighs> where's he at when he's saying stuff like that? You think, like, what's he thinking about? That's that's, that's a good question. Go, Luke. Like these these types of thoughts, like the 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 philosophical concepts that are thrown out, and like the 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 mindset that you're in when you have these kinds of thoughts, I think it's easy enough to kind of write that stuff off as a little bit uh, sophomoric or something. Like mm -hmm. like whenever I, I I can't escape the scene in Animal House where like the college kids are all like smoking pot with Donald Sutherland and they're all talking <laughs> about like you know man we're just like we're part of the atoms on a blade of grass or something like that. Like that's a, that's actually Stephen King, like gunslinger stuff, mm -hmm. I think there, but, but it's that sort of concept that like scale and the, the infinity of, of time and space. Like we can't say, you know, anything about the, the meaning, like everything is relative. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that seems like such a, like elementary philosophical jumping off point but it's also like the most it's 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 so deep and it really is something that when you start wrapping your head around that it sort of engulfs you so it, it totally fits with how cole sees things and it it very much fits with with howard's deeper darker more brooding sort of mindset too mm -hmm. like it totally yeah is a how that that is a howardian headspace to be playing in mm-hmm this is the gigantic melancholies is what you're saying. Yeah. 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 I think so too. And this story pairs really well, I think with mirrors of Tiz and Thune, which also addresses notions of reality and scale and who are you like identity type, uh, uh, issues and subjects mm -hmm. that play into this story as well. Yeah, this is, I, I like how this story, you know, there's those concepts that come up within the Tuzan Thun story. I like how this story wrestles with uh, that sort of per like the the issue of perception relating direct, like to absolutely to existence, like the mm. life death dichotomy. And this is this is Howard being pretty uh, pretty Eastern with a lot of his thinking. And there's some some cool ideas there about uh, just the, the cycle and the nature of things. Do you think this is some sort of – I know we talked a little bit about his mental health with Mark in the last episode, and we don't like to just make him sound like he had problems. But is this part of his depression, thinking about stuff like this? 
I don't think so. I mean, I think about this stuff. I think every, uh, you know, I think, I think everybody wrestles with these types of ideas. I think if you don't, I don't think you're a fully realized person. Mm, <laughs> like, <laughs> and maybe that's me passing a little bit of judgment. But <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that this is necessarily inextricably linked with uh, depression issues. Uh, I read it as a very um, Ecclesiastian kind of view of life. Yeah. And tell the, me more about that. Just the, the, the context is what you give it, I guess it, it, oh, okay. it is the definition is as you define it. If you're talking about life and reality and scale and if you are of the mindset that maybe uh, there are other worlds than these, to borrow another Stephen Kingism, then then that makes it so to you, and yeah, that colors your perception of of everything. Maybe I think I think you're dead on with your use of that term ecclesiastical because like the way that. The way that the story ends here, and we'll we'll give our quick little synopsis of the Vorpage story here in just a second, but mm-hmm. it ends with like Cole like coming back, like he's he's basically you know had his near death experience and he's coming back, and the extension of that is the uh, enjoy life to its fullest, uh, enjoy those moments of mirth and the the just being of here because it is going to blink out in the not too distant future. You only got one one go around that you're gonna you're gonna reckon here. Do what you can. Like that is absolutely like the Ecclesiastes kind of statements. Yeah. We're all going to the same place. <laughs> uh the rich, the poor, the the wise, the foolish. We're we're all going. So you may as well enjoy the ride while you're on it. And I think so whenever I had that quick like sort of like response that no i don't think that this type of thinking is a is a symptom or an indication of like depressive thoughts i think this is a story that has a it doesn't outright have a happy sort of tone to it at the end but it has a a a cosmic sort of heavy philosophical tone that doesn't have to be a negative thing right like the the interpretation or the impression like with what we just said there is like, that's not necessarily, like, that's the humanist perspective, like, aside from any, like, heaven and hell where you're going, like, be good for good sake and you better enjoy it this time around kind of mentality. Like, that is a fairly, I think that's, I think that's as optimistic a perspective on, like, the life experiences you can have. Mm-hmm. What about you, John? What You, you asked <clears throat> that question. I wonder, do you have any thoughts on the subject. Yeah, I I think that I think part of why I asked that question is that when I read through Cole and we compare him to Conan a lot, I know we did that a lot during the Lost Road season and we did it last up ep- or the first episode even of this season that I feel like he is more of an expression of some of those depressed thoughts or just like that spiraling feeling that maybe sometimes people can get. I feel like Cole often succumbs to that in a way that Conan does it. And not to make Howard sound like some sort of schizophrenic writer or something, but I feel like he's expressing these different parts of his personality. So like Conan is very much, he buys into that human aspect that Luke was hitting on of you only get one go around and 
Uh, I'm going to make the most of it. It doesn't matter if, if we're just thoughts passing on a page, like I live, I laugh, therefore I burn with desire. And Cole seems to me much more like, I don't know. He like slips into these things in a way that we didn't see with Conan. He slips into these, uh, I don't know. What were we talking about before the show? The matrix kind of thing. Yeah. Like he slips into this mindset more of, of cosmic insignificance Mm -hmm. perhaps. And I, I don't think I necessarily see it as a negative thing. Like I don't see it all bad, but I do think that Cole comes to this insignificance part much easier than Conan does. Like Conan, his struggle against whatever is in front of him negates his insignificance. Whereas Cole is like, Whoa, I am just one speck in one speck of sand in the whole world or in the whole multiverse. I don't know. I I'm kind of ad libbing here, but well, I I think the the thing I pick up on with Cole is that he doesn't often seem to make declarative statements. He instead asks these kind of uh, Socrative questions, yeah. right? Like yeah. in okay. Tuzanthun, he is asking, "Is that me in the mirror? Am I the illusion? Is the mirror image of me the real?" who is Cole anyway, right? And he never, uh, to my to my memory, never makes a declarative, uh, I am Cole. Whereas in uh, the, by this acts I rule, he does make some declarative, I am, I am the law, I am the state. But only after his utmost exasperation at the way in which the, the system that he's trapped in is trapping him. I wonder if... I don't know. Maybe I'm not. I'm not saying that that Conan is the superior character or the superior sort of like protagonist or anything like that. But I'm just thinking now. Like it seems like Cole and may I, I don't recall that we've covered this this ground before. But maybe maybe I'm wrong. Like you guys correct me if if I am. Uh, like Cole asks the questions and he's almost more of a mouthpiece for for Howard. Like sort of throwing these rhetorical questions out there mm-hmm. whereas Conan is more of a statement about about these things. Like what do you guys think about that? Have we yeah. have we hit on that before? I don't think we have. But I would agree with your assessment like Conan is much more the man of action even when we're talking about heavy philosophical things. I mean like the very first episode of the season I feel like we didn't necessarily talk directly about that but we were hitting on that concept that Conan, it seems much more natural at the end where he is in charge and he's still in charge. Whereas Cole, he has this almost mental breakdown of, I can't do what I need to do. I know what's right, but I'm trapped yeah, yeah. by circumstance and I, I have to shatter these stones and I have to declare myself the king. And it almost rung hollow, I thought, in the moment of, like, I am king, I am in charge, but you know that he does if you look at cole in the long view like he is much less believable in that role than conan is i think that's part of the difference he he isn't really ever fully in charge does that make any sense Uh, i i think i think i'm picking up what you're saying that conan is is much more he takes on an agency that Cole doesn't seem too often to do. 
Yeah. He he is a man of action, whereas Cole is a man of introspection. Right. Cole gets lost in these swirly thoughts of, am I the reflection or am I the man? Am I a man or am I a Muppet? That kind of <laughs> stuff. Very mainly Muppet. Uh, <laughs> and I feel like Conan, it's much simpler with him. Like He may wrestle with that for a moment, but he ultimately comes through and says, I am... I am Conan and I'm going to stibbity stab whatever it is that's in front of me. <laughs> and I mean, take that for what it is. I'm not saying that's superior. I'm saying that it's different and that Cole to me represents an aspect of Howard that Conan doesn't, I guess that, that Conan is maybe more of what he would want to do or want to be, or what we all want to be in some ways. But Cole is much more real in terms of, it's not, I don't, I, the sophomoric thing, I get what you were saying. Like, I think that, that, that's the easy thing to say. Like, oh, sure, you must have smoked some pot and been in, in sophomore literature and philosophy or something. But I don't know. There's something to this whole interaction that Howard is having with Cull, Cull is having with reality, Howard's having with reality that mm-hmm. I think there's something interesting there about uh, the author. I think there's a reason, though, that in, liberal arts curriculums most students end up at some point in their their schooling reading uh the allegory of the cave Mm -hmm. which has some pertinence to what we're talking about now right so that actually leads me to a question i wanted to ask you i have never taken a philosophy class ever in my long tenure as an academic person have either of you taken philosophy courses yeah, I've taken a couple. I took intro to philosophy and then medieval philosophy. Uh, when, Ooh, medieval philosophy. Yeah, yeah that's a, cool. a bunch of my buddies were uh, like psychology major, philosophy minors, and so okay. uh, I took a handful of uh, the those types of classes. I took like sociology uh, with with those guys too, and that was mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. So medieval philosophy is basically like Christian philosophy type stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know the the intro to philosophy class hit on all of the various big schools of thought. I've only taken ethics courses, um, environmental ethics as an undergraduate, and then uh, Luke, didn't you take Kalis's? Oh yeah, ethics course. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. In, in grad yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, so I guess so that one too. So science, like a science and ethics class. That's what it was called, right? I think so. Yeah. Um, My only interaction with philosophy was, is reading Action Philosophers, the comic book. Nice. <laughs> there, there's a great podcast that Luke turned me on to called Philosophy Bites. Right. I remember you all talking about that before. It, it's 10-minute long little uh, nugget-sized discussions of, of these types of uh, philosophical ideas. So I feel like in conversations with Luke, like you love philosophy, right? Oh, I do. Like – you know, I while those were only the official classes, like I read a lot of the same sort of like texts that my buddies were 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 covering, and lots of conversations were had whenever they were taking like their moral philosophy uh, class, and whenever they took like ethics proper. Mm. So yeah, I I love this stuff. So do you like Cole because of that? Because he's kind of a philosophical dude. Yeah, absolutely, I do. Yeah, I I do. I mean, I see the whole, like, I like, it, it does frustrate me, uh, 
philosophers are frustrating when they're in the habit of just taste chase they're the dog that's chasing their tail mm-hmm. uh i like the decisiveness under which like like a a character like conan it's like you know for better or worse this is the path that i'm taking that sort of mindset but yeah i i, I very much love the uh the those types of characters cool and you messaged us last night and said you were really psyched to talk about the story. Yeah, I, I, I was. It just, th- I think this story was different and it's not like, it's not generic and I don't think it's cheesy. I, I think I, I really do. Whenever I say, said that before, like, I, I don't know if other folks feel the way that I do about the, uh, like those types of thoughts about the infinite the infinity of it all and how like that seems like such a generic way to approach our existence. But I mean, that's the truth. Like we, we do all have those thoughts and I love that Howard was tapping into this here. And I don't think we've ever quite seen such a raw, like four pages totally devoted to like the near death experience of a character. Like we haven't seen like Howard wax on with this, this uh you know this shadow that's you know explaining things to him mm-hmm. right so let's let's jump into the story given given that we've sort of established the type of uh philosophical underpinnings we're dealing with uh do you luke do you have a a uh, a way that you would summarize the story uh i guess it's basically it is that near death experience. That's that's what is playing out here. But it's Cole, uh, and in the first, I don't know, twenty percent of the story, something like that. He doesn't. We don't even know that it's Cole, right? Yeah. It's 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 written as if there's a man, and the way that I would see this portrayed, like on a stage play, is a totally naked person just highlighted by a single spotlight and they're just in a void of blackness and he's uh exploring and and asking questions like why am i here what is what is going on and then something answers from the void and explains to him that he's he's moved on and of course cole is rationalizing that in the terms of well am i dead and the the statements that are laid out before him are no that's that's your simplistic sort of human existence understanding of things things are so much bigger mm-hmm. uh time and space and existence is so much more than that you're just like matter changing <laughs> and then he's pulled back like he comes back and he's uh he's there talking to to Brule. Mm-hmm. and he's like what have i seen yeah, the I've I've lived a, a countless millions of years in uh, the moment during which the gong was struck, or something to the effect. Is, yeah. is how it, it ends. Luke, did you get to see this drawing of the of the shadow figure that's in the Del Rey? Oh no, I did not. So I think this I is kind of like a up view of him. I'm gonna look at it here in Josh's copy because yeah, I read it through the. Uh, like through the 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 like the Moby like the the Kindle. I like that. Yeah, I like it too. It seems very Living Tribunal to me to yeah. to tie it to a Marvel Comics kind of thing. <laughs> uh, Justin Sweet nailed the illustrations in that. 
That's so yeah, great. it's pretty good. They're good. They're some of my favorites in the uh, the the entirety of the Del Rey uh, Howard Library. That's cool. Did you, uh, John? Did you read any of the co- the the comic for it? I didn't read the comic right. for it. So What's where's the comic at? It's in the Savage sort of cold, like the volume one. There's a short, oh. uh, and I I actually just started flipping through it before we started recording, uh, and I wish I would have came up here last night when I was when I was reading it because it is it's pretty great. So it's let's hear. When you were high on opium, yeah. listening to Dio, <laughs> I was not on the opium. No, uh, no, that's a that's a falsehood. I apologize, listeners. None of us, but I was opium. listening to Dio and something Lizzie uh, as I was reading this, and it, it worked well. Uh, so the striking of the gong originally occurred in the back matter of Savage Sword of Conan number twenty three in October seventy seven. Uh, of course, it was adapted by Roy Thomas. Uh, it says here the art is by Rick. Hoberg and Bill Ray, uh, and I'll hand it off here to Josh. But it's it's really pretty, and it's exactly as cosmicy as you would as you would hope as you would hope that it is. So it's it's cool. Oh yeah, planets and stars, and a specter-like figure. Yep. Passed through the door. Am I dead? Yeah, that's great. So. Uh, I mean, I think this is a story. It's cool because it only has a couple characters, right? I mean, we see Brule at the end, but really, Brule's not a character. Like he's uh, just there for the moment. But really, it's it's the the think piece with Cole and whoever this other this other thing is. Mm-hmm. So, was there something in particular that you guys really liked about the story? That you wanted to bring to the discussion? I like the infinite nature uh, as things are sort of explained to us at the front end. Like, the that was very compelling and very scary. Mm. Uh, and then, I'm not saying that I was... Like, you're not put at ease by the the cloaked figure that's, that's speaking to Cole. But you truly get a feeling of, like omniscience and omnipotence not necessarily benevolence because i think it's like beyond the good bad Mm -hmm. kind of dichotomy but that that sort of mindset of it's not it's not agnostic and it's not atheistic it's very much there is something else there's a spiritual sort of sort of feeling there and that i think that lends a little bit towards the uh the slightly optimistic perspective that i took from like the end of the story too mm-hmm. let me come up here and church this up with some catholicism okay <laughs> lay it on us uh, i so comparing the del rey version to the is it the lancer version that you yeah, provided yeah. luke right yes yeah so looking between those two stories this reh version i felt was very is is much more atheistic whereas that lynn carter version to me came at it as much more of a like this is heaven's waiting room. This is kind of a limbo bit of an area. Isn't there much more of a discussion in that version of, well, I didn't say you were dead, but if you are dead, maybe you're like in this transitional zone between life where you're from and death where you're going. Um, and there's some reincarnation talk there that I felt like wasn't in this. But for me, I I was really looking at this character as this, not St. Peter-esque kind of person, 
but a similar character, something of an angelic host that is like sorting people out as they're moving from earth into the hereafter and exposing them to the fact that, Hey, there's a multitude. There's, there are many things out there that you'll never understand. Um, so I, I didn't feel atheistic reading it because I didn't grow up atheistic, but that was kind of where I came from. I've, I viewed the, the figure that Cole meets as kind of a, uh, is it Charon? Charon? From Greek mythology, uh, yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. He's the boatman. He's the he's your your welcome, uh, your tour guide, and he's gonna uh, lead the orientation that's gonna begin in just a few minutes. <laughs> so he, I thought, was there to sort of ferry these souls to wherever it is they're going, um, whether that is an afterlife or another world beyond the worlds that we know. Um, whatever it is, like he is the person that's going to hold your hand and lead you along the way. He's your guide. One, one thing that I was interested in is that in the Howard version, as Cole is, is kind of looking around and, um, sort of trying to rationalize what has happened to him. He says to himself, this is surely not everything. There must be something else. What is different from this? Light. I know. I remember light, though I do not remember what light is. Surely I have known a different world than this. And in that sentence, uh, or in that uh, short paragraph, light is capitalized at each point that it's mentioned. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the Lynn Carter version, light is not capitalized. The, L's, the L is lowercase. And... That strikes me as as so strange because when you capitalize a word like light, you give it additional layers of meaning. And I'm curious because, you know, we don't know if that's an intentional sort of capitalization on Howard's part. Like, did he just accidentally? Was this a mistake? If it was, it was consistent. So I have to believe that it was not a mistake that this was intentional. Mm -hmm. And so why is light, the word light capitalized? And then when we go a little bit further and we talk to this figure, Cole says, uh, I am Cole, King of Volusia, but what am I doing here without garments or weapons? The specter replies, no man may bring anything through the door with him. The door is capitalized. Um, and then he says, uh, goes on and says, you pass through the door. It always seems dark and door again is capitalized. So mm -hmm. I, I feel like the, that fact that door is capitalized, that light is capitalized. Like though, those are intentional, um, decisions that Howard made that add a layer of meaning to those words. I think you're, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, you, or at least I did like, like the passing through the door. Like that was the, the metaphor for death, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the, that's the, the statement there. So yeah, I think there is a gravity there. So how did you guys, so how did Josh, I know you said you didn't have the chance to like really look at both copies simultaneously. Yeah. Not closely. How did you read it, John? I read it in the Delray first and then compared that to the, the Lancer version after that. So I was reading both 
almost simultaneously, and I've never done this before. And I, I'll nice. be honest, I, I wasn't able to like take serious notes because I was really just enjoying the mm-hmm. story. And uh, I mean, I don't necessarily think that the Carter uh, revision is is bad. It's different, and I think there's layers of things that you can comment on. But he, he, this is different than the uh revision like the decampian revision that we talked about last mm-hmm. last recording it strikes me like the the terms the the language the structure of things that carter puts forth here in this story is way more dramatic than the differences that at least we 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 saw with the god in the bowl like with with that it's- yeah the heart's the same uh, that's yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. It, it strikes me that the the overall spirit of the story is the same between the two versions, mm-hmm. but uh, given Carter's predilections toward editing mm-hmm. and his abilities as an editor, like he has uh, sort of molded this in a certain way. And I think one difference between considering this story and Lynn Carter's revisions and The God in the Bowl. And Elsbrig de Camp's revisions of that story is that the God in the Bowl was a complete narrative. It, it was a it was a finished story mm-hmm. that um, had under had had uh, been written a couple of times. There were there were some drafts of it. Whereas uh, I don't know if there are other drafts of the striking of the Gong. Like I don't know if this is the the first draft or a, a later draft, but mm-hmm. it's raw. Right, like this is this is a this is a raw story that that sort of comes out in a very uh, sort of, in my mind at least, uh, um, earnest way. But I don't think that it's uh, like it's a vignette. But I don't like. I think it's a complete story, though. Like this isn't a fragment, like a Solomon Kane fragment, like that we cover. Right. Yeah. Like this is a complete like thought form. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And, Howard Howard had it all there. And so I feel like I, I don't know, but I feel like this is this has to be a revision or two down the road and almost uh, like this is what he submitted to Argosy. Right. right. That's that's uh, my understanding, yeah. And so this is a clean thing and really like it's it's sharp, man. I like the I like the sentiment here uh as well as any any of the other Howard stuff that we've read that's been of this like brief of a nature, and we've mm-hmm. read some short Howard stuff, yeah. Uh, but like in terms of what is played out here, this this is like this is top notch stuff. I, I really loved it, and so the way that I was reading it, I had both like the I was reading the the Delray version on on my phone. And then I had the Lancer paperback. And so basically I would read three or four paragraphs in one version and then I would bounce over and read the other three or four paragraphs. And I did that like three times over and I was done with the story. And so it was cool to see the differences in the language. And so I would read like one section and kind of sit there and like take a, take a, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't like cleanse my palate or anything, but I sort of like (laughs) thought for a second about like my feeling. And then I went back and reread the other, like the corresponding bit of text and to see if it like, if there were, if I could notice any striking differences. And in some cases I could like with Mm. some of the, some of the sentiments that are there, like just the language that, that Carter uses. But the thing that I noticed most dramatically was how like 
Carter really did shift a lot of like the overall structure of the 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 words. Like he didn't just like sub out. He didn't have his thesaurus out. Like right. he was he was doing whole craft uh, revisions of of sentences and like moving things around and expanding paragraphs in yeah. some places and and cutting them down and other yeah. like he he's an editor here. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that I did was take a look at the the first paragraph in both and uh do you guys mind if we read the first paragraph no let's do it man okay i insist that you do so (laughs) so this is the howard version the first paragraph of the story somewhere in the hot red darkness there began a throbbing a pulsating cadence soundless but vibrant with reality sent out long rippling tendrils that flowed through the breathless air The man stirred, groped about with blind hands, and sat up. At first it seemed to him that he was floating on the even and regular waves of a black ocean, rising and falling with a monotonous regularity which hurt him physically somehow. He was aware of the pulsing and throbbing of the air, and he reached out his hands as though to catch the elusive waves. But was the throbbing in the air about him or in the brain inside his skull? He could not understand, and a fantastic thought came to him, a feeling that he was locked inside his own skull. And if you compare that to the Carter version, um, it it is... Luke, read the Carter version. Yeah, read it. It's, it's dramatically different. So I was, I was reading through here uh along like as Josh was was reading from the Del Rey text. It's expanded. It's expanded and it's it's different. Like here it's a series of shorter paragraphs. So somewhere in the hot red darkness a dim, faint vibration was born. A pulse of sound, a sourceless whisper, a dim drumming cadence like the beating of a hot red heart amid the blackness. The man stirred prodded towards consciousness by the throbbing echo. He sat up, reaching about with blind hands through the blur of hot darkness, but could feel nothing. The sound was clearer now, sharper, almost a substance, almost tangible. As it pulsed, it cast forth long, rippling tendrils that spread the hot, breathless dark as a black lake stirs to spread ripples, or to spreading ripples. The pulse rose and felt about him, within him, it was as if he rose and fell on the moving surface of a black ocean, riding on the drumming waves. He could not decide if the soundless pulsation was in the darkness about him or if it, if it drummed within his brain. His very skull rang with the throbbing as a beating gong, a fantastic thought, since needles of ice through him, being alone here with the pulsing red darkness, was like being imprisoned within his own brain. And I think that's the about the... The state, like that's about the point totally. that the other one wrapped up. So between those two statements, I I think that the spirit of what's happening is the same. Mm-hmm. Like you're getting the same sort of picture, but it, I, I think Carter kind of softens the language and expl- expands it, makes it a little bit more flowery. He does, yeah. And there's there's emphasis on a like like the uh, the heat of the of the conditions is something that's stressed. Like there's recurring references to that. Uh, and then also he drops in the gong reference too, yep. which is him like wanting to hammer home that theme, I guess. Uh, I mean, there's differences and it's not necessarily better or worse. Right. I don't think. 
Yeah. Yeah. Would, the I Howard thing seems to me much more like a like a second by second, like that's quick. Whereas with Carter's, I feel like we're talking about a minute, a minute and a half of reaction mm-hmm. and revelation. A, a summary of the feeling rather than the feelings as they occur. Yes. That's yeah. That's good. I mean, I I, I get that. And and but, so go ahead. I was just going to say I don't think that I don't think we're casting aspersions on Carter, right? I mean, I don't, I'm not trying it's not, to. It's not better or worse. There's just definitely a difference. And so I, I titled this episode the the inspiration because I think of the the two primary players in Howard revisions. Uh, through the through the seventies, sixties and seventies, uh, Lynn Carter strikes me as the one who has the more, um, I don't know, fan based uh, elation. Like he he genuinely loves this heroic fantasy stuff, right? Yeah. Can we still do some things about like what we like and don't like, or about the story? Oh yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm I'm just kind of waxing about Carter. I, I don't know where to take it from here. Um, other than to say, I guess my, my button that I would put on this is that in this story, at least the, the Lynn Carter editorial work is not detrimental to the tale. Uh, but of the two, I would prefer to read Howard's original work just as sort of a, uh, a general rule. I think so. What I wanted to talk about is kind of an example of that. And I'll read the part that we have in the Delray if Luke wants to read again from the Lancer version. But okay. this would be on like one page, page 163 for you, Luke. Okay. Um, this part I liked a lot from the, the Delray version. Uh, Call just ha- has asked this question, then where in Volca's name am I? And the shadowy figure answers, your barbarian brain clutches at material actualities, answered the other tranquilly. What does it matter where you are or whether you are dead, as you call it? You are part of the great ocean, which is life, which washes upon all shores. And you are as much a part of it in one place as in another. And is sure to uh, eventually flow back to the source of it, which gave birth to all life. As for that, you are bound to life for all eternity, as surely as a tree, a rock, a bird, or a world is bound. You call leaving your tiny planet quitting your crude physical form death and then call answers but i still have my body i have not said you are dead as you name it as for that you may still be upon your little planet as far as you know worlds within worlds universes within universes things exist too small and too large for human comprehension each pebble on the beaches of Volusia contains countless universes within itself and itself as a whole is as much a part of the great plan of all universes as is the sun you know. Your universe call of Volusia may be a pebble on the shore of a mighty kingdom. So it's it's quite expanded within the, the Lancer version. <laughs> and like as you were reading that, like the thing that I can say here is it's the way that, that, that Carter adapted it is he makes it less about Cole and more about just waxing on about the infinity of the cosmos. Like he doesn't make yes. those references to Cole and his immediate perception of things. So I'll just read like the, uh, the, the latter portion. He said, 
Uh, Cole says, but this body is mine. I remember it well. And then the, the being says, I have not said that you are dead as you know death. And as for that, you may still be on your birth world as far as you yet know. Worlds within worlds, universes within universes. The eternal sea laps ten times ten million strange shores, yet all is one. These things truly exist, which are too small to be comprehended by the human mind, as do the things too huge. Each grain of crystal sand upon the beach of your Volusia contains within itself a million universes, and each as mighty as the universe you know. As well, all of your star-thronged and multi-worlded universe may compose but a single grain of crystal sand upon the shore of some stupendous kingdom beyond reach of thought. You have burst the bonds of the flesh. You have gone beyond." This universe wherein you stand may comprise but a tiny gem sewn upon one of your own kingly robes, or all the vast universe you know, but may be a drop of dew here in the dust at your feet where we stand. Size is an illusion. Neither space nor time are real. Life and death are two words whose meaning is one. I think it's about the same sort of cloth. Yeah. 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 But he's not naming Cole. Like, he's he's in the, the, the meat of that 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 thought he's untethered from like saying you, 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 he's saying this, this is the situation. It seems like mm-hmm. it's interesting. Cause I feel like Mark talked in the last episode about Howard has a poet's heart. And yet I feel like Carter is more poetic about this particular idea in that instance about, you know, there's this, there's that, this is big, this is small. You could be from a gym. You could be from a sand grain. Uh, I feel like he's more expressive about it or expressive in a different way, perhaps. And Carter had the opportunity to live within the sort of like hippified uh, uh, Jack Kirby, like uh, uh, pop culturally world where all of these thoughts became more common and generic. Right. Mm -hmm. So maybe Maybe there's something the age of Aquarius. Yeah, he lived through that summer of love thing, whereas <laughs> Howard, you know, was grasping at a lot of these feelings without that sort of cultural revolution and those sorts of mindsets. And that is a bit of development in the story that makes me wonder uh, whether or not Howard was done with this. Like, I, I just don't know. Uh, clearly, like you pointed out, Luke, he sent this to Argosy. Um, and it was rejected. So, um, yeah, uh, it needed work, obviously. Like, it wasn't uh, accepted for publication. It's interesting that he didn't go to weird tales with this. It's a weird story, man. It seems it, like it would fit there. Yeah. Like, there's there's a bit of the Lovecraftian uh, sort of view of, of the universe as so big you can't uh, contain it all in your mind and, yeah. and so indifferent and vast that, you know, ultimately you're just a speck of sand and all we are is dust in the wind. Yeah. I, f- I feel like even in both of these versions, though, there's still this like, there's a hope to it, right? You're never really dead. You're still, even when you die, your energy washes up on some other beach in some other universe, right? Right. And, and so I want to read the rest of the quote that we started the, this discussion with. Uh, and this is f- uh, continuing on that letter from Howard to Tevis Clyde Smith. And he says, 
Um, we cannot escape these trails in which our paths lie. We do not, as individual entities, really exist. We do not live. There is no life. There is no existence. There is simply vibration. What is a life but an uncompleted gesture, beginning in oblivion and ending in oblivion? There is no beginning, nor will there ever be an end to the thing. That's Howard the Artist right there. I mean, that's like that's the <laughs> poet that's coming out. Yeah. Uh, and and it does seem like this notion of infinities upon infinities and scale and you know your perspective depends on where you stand. If you're up on the mountaintop and look down, then all the structures and people look very small. But if you're a million miles from Earth, it's just a glittering star, right? Like all of these things are true at the same time. You're getting all Ben Kenobi on again. <laughs> Certain well, points of view. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, whenever when you said that, it makes me think of that image where I can't remember what the satellite is, but it's looking back beyond Saturn at oh, Earth, right. yeah, and we're yeah, just yeah. this tiny. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of our first season where Luke talked about uh, which probe is it that went beyond the solar system oh, and is so alone. Was it Voyager? Yeah, the Voyager. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm that, is that uh, what you think of when you think of cosmic insignificance? Is the Voyager or, probe? Or, or is that the opposite? Is uh, that significant? The, to me, that image has like has a level of optimism and uh, a little bit of like, gee whiz, hey, look at how small we are, but yet think about all of the all of the beauty that's there that mm-hmm. you can't see, that little blue dot. Uh, there's so much beauty there that you can't that you can't grapple with. Like the cosmic insignificant, like the cosmic horror, is the inky, like just the inky blackness that that Cole experiences in the op- like uh, in the opening like throes of this story. Mm-hmm. And is the light in Howard's version the light is capitalized, right? Like yeah. the the fact that when he thinks of the capital L light, he steps out into the starlight, and then this this person with this knowledge and this mm-hmm. wisdom that casts light upon his situation, like, is that combating that sort of eternal darkness that lies beyond the the reaches of the sun? Yeah, out out there in the the outer dark of the cosmos. Um, I was thinking about just now since you invoked Stephen King earlier in the mm-hmm. the Dark Tower, like the the end of the Gunslinger when the man in black is showing Roland all of the, the way that the, the universe actually is structured. And he keeps saying, let there be light Uh and the gunslinger can't help, but see the horrible truth of the universe in front of him. Mm -hmm. That, that is a more pessimistic story than this one for sure. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I mean, this has like the turns of like the, the final beats of like season one of true detective too, right? Like there's a, a very pessimistic story, but it has like this weird little 20 second uptick <laughs> right at the end that make that's like the inversion of, of, of what you've been seeing this whole time. And, you know, that's the beauty of that kind of story. I think that's the beauty of this kind of story. Like that, that certain point of view, uh, mindset is what separates the indomitable spirit from the, like hopelessly depressed. And maybe that's like, I don't know. Maybe that's what, you know, Howard wrestled with. I don't Yeah. Maybe. So when you said you were psyched about the story, 
did we cover all of the things that you were psyched to talk I about? I think so. Like, I was saying that, and I wasn't even necessarily, like, looking into, like, Carter. And I've read a little bit about Carter, and I knew bits and pieces of him. So so I wasn't even, like, thinking about that. It was all about the the juicy cosmic goodness in the story. And we've, we've definitely... We've definitely gotten gotten into it. Uh, I guess a few more remarks about Carter, though. I think you're right, Josh. Like with the way that you frame things up, Carter subscribed to a lot of the mindsets about Howard. I think that, that DeCamp, you know, really put forth that kind of thing. Mm. But really, Carter was a fan. Um, Carter was a fanboy, like in mm. a lot of ways. So he. You know, we've we've read at least the first Thongor, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but he wrote a lot of that kind of stuff. He, you know, was a, a main driver for the uh, what, like the uh, the Ballantine Adult Fantasy series, which mm-hmm. is his home. It's another thing, but in terms of his his sword and sorcery push, like the Flashing Swords Flashing anthology, swords. was the thing that he was a big profo- proponent of. And so I pulled it up here, like I was reading the anthology right before you got here, Josh, and mm-hmm. before we started recording, like the introduction of this anthology, you know, there's f- very glowing remarks about Howard, and it very much sets up the need for that that sort of heroic voice back in like 73 or whenever this whenever this book came out. But, you mm-hmm. know, like they called like the swords, swordsmen and sorcerers guild of America or the saga group, like the people that continually contributed to those flashing swords anthologies. Uh, they were, they were luminaries and Carter, I think, I think a lot of his contributions often get poo pooed as like the worst of the contributions that are in there, but he was still like the, the spirit of it. So, I don't want to make this a total fluff fluff piece for Carter or or a or a poo-poo show. I just think that for for he had good intentions the same way that we can argue that DeCamp or Durlith or lots of these other people did. It just kind of got bound up in their own vision of things and their own like financial investments. And ultimately, you know, we're we're all just people yeah. and, with our flaws and our our uh qualities. Um the other thing that I think is interesting about Lynn Carter, and we talked about this on the Thongor episodes, but he established, or, or at least was instrumental in co-establishing the, uh, is it the Gandalf Awards? Oh, yeah, right, right. So, uh, recognizing contributions to uh, the the genre of uh, heroic fiction. So, you know, he's he is a mainstay. Uh, for better or for worse, his, his name and Howard's name are linked as Mark pointed out last time, maybe we're moving past those associations with, with Lynn Carter and Elspreg de Camp. And, you know, I, I think that it, given a week to sort of reflect upon that, I think he's right. Man, you know, I really do think too that that's a healthy, that's great. Like, mm-hmm. if we are in a post de Campian, a post Carterian Howard world, I mean, we can all agree that we get the cool, pure Howard text, but it's cool that we can also evaluate those dudes on their on their own merits too. And we don't have to be like pooping on them, and we don't have to just be bound to like having to read their materials, right? That's cool. Like, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Like, the limited amount of writing that I've read for both Carter and DeCamp. There's great, great stuff there. I know there's a lot of 
less than great material too, but the, the same can be said for Howard and for, for other writers too. So I'm not trying to beat around the bush and like play, play both sides here. I guess what I'm trying to say is I am excited that we can read Carter and DeCamp and interpret their work fairly, just like any old seventies or eighties, like fantasy writer. Cause God knows there's, <laughs> there's any number of, of great or horrible fantasy writers from the seventies and the eighties that you can read. Right. Mm. And they're not the only two dudes that wrote Conan. Right. And exactly. Yeah. You, I'm, I'm totally like, if I find their, their Conan materials, that's just them riffing on that. I'm still going to pick them up for two bucks just to mm-hmm. give them a, a quick little fair shake and see if I don't like it, I can just set it aside. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. That That is the beauty of it. And that's the difference between the, the seventies and today. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so I totally concede like the remarks that, that, that Finn made in our last recording that, you know, if I would have been around at that point in time, maybe I would have more of a, of a ax to grind or a chip on my shoulder or whatever other, you know, <laughs> Yeah. Sort of like simplified sort of statement they can make there. But now we live in a we live in a a great crazy age. You can get this stuff. <laughs> However you wanna consume it. Yeah. And that's great. That's cool. John, do you have any final thoughts about the striking of the gong? I think we've struck it well. We struck the gong. We get we got it. Got it in one. Nailed <laughs> <laughs> that gong. We we always get it in one. That's true. We never. There's never a take two with the Chromecast, <laughs> unless something bad happens. Yeah, once, right? Only with, one. Only once. <laughs> with knock, Sizemore, knock we did a, a repeat recording of yeah. that one. Yeah, Jason Sizemore. That was all my fault. I blame myself. <laughs> I blame myself. <laughs> uh, so, where are we going next, guys? Where are we going next, Joshua? Next up, John, is the transformation. And that is a discussion. <laughs> uh, the full moon shines down upon you and you become a beast. Um, I got furry thighs. <laughs> that's right, you do. Somebody, Somebody's looking for a stranger. <laughs> I said... Uh, never mind, I'll tell you off mic. <laughs> no, I, I'm tracking. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to do the, the black stranger with Rusty Burke. And we're going to also discuss how Robert E. Howard edited that story into the story, The Swords of the Red Brotherhood, and also discuss the transformation of the story by Elsprig de Camp into the story titled The Treasure of Tranicos. All of these three stories evidently have the same core, but uh, sort of develop in different ways. And so <laughs> it'll be interesting. <laughs> it will be interesting to determine how how things pan out with each Strang- of these stories. Stranger. <laughs> Stranger danger? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> no. Don't let... Don't. Okay. What, what does Chappelle say? <laughs> have, you, have you ever given yourself a stranger? <laughs> that, like, that voice, it just... It, that's what's so funny. <laughs> is, is that little John? Is that... Yes. Is that his little John? Have what? Ever... Okay! <laughs> okay! <laughs> I love it. We're off the rails, right? Yep. It's right on time. Yep, just right on cue. So next up, we're heading to the transformation. We're going to be joined by our pal Rusty Burke, uh, and we're going to work our way through these three tales. And that's going to be a fun discussion, a fun way to work through these stories. And until then, 
You can find us on the web at thecromcast.blogspot.com. We're on Twitter at thecromcast. That's where Luke posts his uh, photos of his uh, vinyl alongside stories and uh, liquor bottles. I might, I might live tweet a Saturday night. That's, we, who knows was, what's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash thecromcast. And you can call us. That's 859-429-CROM. Get your parents' permission. That's right. Always. Always. And as always, you can find us a little bit further down the road to revisions. Solid. Bye. Yeah.